Hi there, everybody. Welcome to the greatest show, Filmcasters. This is the podcast where we talk about movies and history and how the two go together. We are your greatest showmen, Nick Coffey and Topher, and today we're talking about another greatest showman, Hugh Jackman. And P.T. Barnum. Yeah. but more. Only one, only one of them matters, though. Only one of them, and it's not really Barnum, but he'll be our, our focus. It's going to be a, a wild carnival ride of a time. Right. So we'll, So how we're going to do it for y'all who've never listened before, and we're adding a format kind of new for those of y'all who have listened, we're going to go through the movie and talk about the differences of his life and what the movie showed. Because, uh, boy, were they, were they different. Were they very See, different. Who, who would have guessed that? You know, the movie is not the exact telling of the guy. Yeah, it's a, I'd say 50-50 artistic license. Wow. I, I, you know, even this movie's biggest defender, that's me. And even I was going to say, like, more like 70-30. We'll be nice to them and say 60-40. Okay, I like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. All right, so... Well, since uh, you are probably the real-life expert, you can handle the history side, and me and Topher will walk through the events of the movie. That sounds like a good idea. All right. Well, then, uh, we'll start off with the movie. So it opens with uh, P.T., who's, you know, just... Full disclosure, spoiler spoiler warning uh, from here on out. Yes, if you haven't seen the movie, you should pause this podcast go watch the movie it's an excellent movie great story uh, and then come back and then we'll talk about the movie and then by the three out of ten movie eight out of ten musical wow that is pretty harsh i say 10 out of 10 all around yeah yeah, yeah. i'll give it nine out of ten. Eight out of ten. Eight. eight out of ten and then hugh jackman gets his own separate 10 out of 10 okay for like a, a good 20 okay okay anyway so this movie opens up with pt uh you know he's the poor son of a tailor who uh meets the love of his life and uh his future dad-in-law slaps him around because uh you know he's gotta know his place and i just want to say like that's a tough kick because i would have cried i you know i still would cry if that happened and uh but so pt becomes an orphan so he's there, you know, living a harsh life on the street, uh, writing to her in boarding school while she's writing to him and sending it to, I guess, a street corner. I don't know. But, you know, it's a, you got that beautiful love story and the, and the setup. Is that how it goes in real life, Coffee? Um, no. So, A. Not even close. No. Very far. So, P.T. Phineas Taylor interesting name was born 1810 yeah was born 1810 and so charity his wife in the movie which was his wife in real life as well well they didn't meet till they they were both about 16 also barnum wasn't an orphan uh his dad did die but that was when he was about 15 and barnum was taking care of his siblings and his mom afterwards 
Uh, Barnum did not grow up on the mean streets of New York. In fact, Barnum didn't grow up in New York at all. He was born in Connecticut. Gosh, and shock. Yeah. He That's moved... not New York. No, it's surprisingly not New York. He did move to New York with Charity because after they fell in love when they were 16, not only did Charity's parents not approve, Barnum's, Barnum's mom didn't approve. His family didn't approve of her as well. So they escaped to New York and eloped together. So big differences. Phineas's dad was a tailor, uh, but Phineas himself in that time worked a variety of jobs. Uh, all sorts of things, be it working from the grocery store. Eventually he tried his hand at a newspaper. He did a lot. But one of the things, in my opinion that wasn't in the movie that was really formative to who Barnum was. So his grandfather loved to play practical jokes. And you're like, oh, I guess that makes sense. You know, the the roguish character that Hugh Jackman portrays. Definitely, you could definitely see him being a prankster. Well, his grandfather got the whole town and his parents in. He bought Barnum a plot of land before he was ever born. You know, and that was going to be his gift to him. So, his parents would remind him, remember, Phineas, you're a landowner. We hold you to a higher standard than others. His friend's parents would thank him for playing with him because they thought maybe a landowner would never do such things for their children. Someone of such high status. So, for like 10 years, they just kind of inflated P.T.'s ego. And then when he was 10, he's like, I want to see my plot of land. They take him to a marsh and show him this really, really sad, completely uninhabitable, pointless piece of land called Ivy Island. And it's then that Phineas realizes the last 10 years, every time he thought these people were complimenting him, it was them laughing at him. So, you know... I don't have proof that that, you know, really formed Barnum's outlook on the role, the world, but I imagine it definitely has a large, large part in why he chose to, you know, feel like it's fine that, you know, we're hoodwinking people, that we're hump doing humbugs, because the first 10 years of his life was all a giant joke by his grandfather. <laughs> I mean, I wonder if the kids he would hang out with were in on the joke too. See that I don't know. I'm willing to bet yes. You see, uh, but I don't think a ten year old could hold it in for that long. That's true. That's a good point. But I bet you they were all told about the joke as soon as he saw it. Oh yeah. Uh, You know what? That would turn me into a con man too. Right? Like if someone does that to you, that's it's a villain origin story. Yeah. I think the difference is that the real life Barnum wished he was an orphan after that maybe yeah i imagine your parents your parents playing this joke on you that's yeah so i think that was pretty formative to barnum but yeah he definitely wasn't an orphan he didn't know charity till they were both pretty much grown up uh and he definitely didn't grow up on the mean streets of uh new york also i think this goes without um kind of hand in hand you know charity's parents i'm guessing i couldn't really find 
but I think they lived in Connecticut with Barnum and not, you know, upper New York like it showed. I might be wrong on that. It was unclear and I couldn't find it well detailed, which they were. But they ran away to New York, so I'm assuming they didn't live in New York. I know I also read somewhere that, uh, you know, even as a kid, he was a a hustler. He was, at 12, he was selling snacks and stuff to soldiers. And uh, he was running his own newspaper. I think something about a boarding house. Oh, this this was later. That that wasn't as a kid. Oh. Um, and so we'll get that, that in the next bit. Or I guess okay. we could go go there now, because you know, in the movie afterwards, it shows him, you know, working at a desk job, and he's living in New York with his wife and girls. Well, th- th- that's true. He well, not the desk job. He didn't really ever have. I, a desk job but he had a lot of jobs before the american museum he didn't open up the american museum until he was sometime in his 30s so while he was in new york he owned a boarding house he ran a general store but his main profit from the general store wasn't a general store it was in classic barnum fashion a lottery is where he Ooh. made most of his money That'll do it. Yeah, yeah. And he he ran one of his first lottery as a kid. He tra- he was working for a general store, and so he managed to trade some goods for a ridiculous amount of like glass bottles. And the owner was like, "What are we supposed to do with all of these, Phineas?" And so Phineas was like, "We'll have a lottery," and the lottery was like uh, four or five dollars a ticket. And or maybe it was one or two. It wasn't an expensive lottery. And it said, if you win, you'll be provided of a hundred dollars worth of goods provided by the uh, chosen by the owners of the store. Which meant he was just whenever someone won, he'd just hand them a ridiculous amount of glass bottles, and that was their goods. He he made profit. He made profit out of it, and so you know. That's what he was doing, and actually, that's where he made a lot of his money. Uh, and then lotteries got banned, so he had to reinvent himself. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Um. You know, I think I would have. I think I don't think I would have been mad if that happened. I, yeah. I I like to think I would have gone with the joke, but you you would have been like, know. you got me. I kind of yeah. hate you a little bit right now. But you got me. You know, it's it's fair game. I I no longer trust you ever. For sure. But but good job this time. What happened next in the movie, Topher? Uh, Hugh Jackman uh, basically commits fraud by uh, you know borrowing money using uh, collateral that he doesn't actually own, and because it's Hugh Jackman, you're just like, oh Hugh. You rascal! Oh yeah, it's it's. I love it. in the movie. It's just laughs laughed off. His wife's like, "How do we afford it?" He's like, "We put up collateral. What collateral? It's in the bottom of the South China Sea." And everyone's like, "Ha ha ha!" Yeah, that that's a crime. That's great. <laughs> Classic. That's my that's my husband for you. Felonies. Yeah. Felonies right there. Exactly. And uh, so then, eventually, he's able to start. Is a museum of oddities. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll pause here to jump in. So, he did not put up some... He didn't commit fraud to get the museum, believe it or not. That, that was made up by believe. the movie. 
This they, they made him worse than he actually was. And that's hard to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what he actually did, if you remember the island I just mentioned, that awful piece of land, I mean, I guess he still kind of committed fraud. He put that up as collateral, but he claimed it was a really nice piece of land instead. But you, you, I mean, you know what? I'm glad he was able to get some use out of that. Yeah, thing. yeah. I see that more as a success story than a, than a. Yeah. Yeah. I I got a I got a I got a fleet I don't of blame ships. him for that one. Yeah. No. No. He he got something out of it. So props to him. But there was this big fight. So, the Museum of Oddities, as you saw, it existed before Barnum got his hands on it. Hmm. There was also another Museum of Oddities in New York at this time. And they wanted to take over the museum that Barnum bought and, like, combine their two. So Barnum had, like, this long, drawn-out legal... Not even a legal fight, but, like, newspaper fight in which he was trying to make them sound bad because their plan was they would buy the museum Barnum wanted to buy by selling shares in themselves, and then they'd have enough to pay their rent, cover their museum, and buy the new museum... And then when that gets profitable, they could buy their shares back. Barnum figured, well, hey, they can't buy it if I make their share price so low because I just keep printing things in the newspaper where I'm just smack talking to them constantly. And so that's what he did. And they realized, they didn't realize that he was completely after it. They did. But they're like, all right, we'll invite him in. We'll say if he stops that... Uh, you know, we'll, we'll give him a position. And they were never going to give him a position. And Barnum knew they weren't going to give him a position. But he was like, sure. Because he knew if they felt safe, they wouldn't pay as quickly. Which let him make a deal with the bank to pay before them. So he was able to steal it right from under them. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, cool little story. But before all this happened... Barnum actually had some exhibit work before the museum. So, the museum opened, for reference, in 1840. But in 1835, Barnum put on his first oddity. So, the woman's name was Joyce Heth. Barnum claimed that she was 160 years old and she was the nurse, like the nursemaid of President George Washington. Now, this wasn't Barnum making it out of nowhere. That was the line he was fed uh, about her. And he bought her anyway? Yes, he did buy her. So at this point, slavery was illegal in New York, but there was a weird loophole where instead of buying her, he could lease her. And I guess technically it wasn't slavery in new york's eyes at the same time but th it's definitely slavery she was a slave and yeah it so there was that and to do that he sold part of his grocery store in order to be able to afford it mm. so he put her on display and you know it, she was doing pretty good she was making a bit of money and then people were starting to get bored of her so P.T. Barnum's like, all right, how can I get people to come back and see her? And he's like, I lied. She actually isn't 160 years old. She's not even a human. In fact, 
she's an automatron. Which then people were like, oh, cool. Let's go dun, see dun, his, dun. his automatron. And then they got bored of that. And uh, she passed away shortly afterwards. And then he sold tickets to her autopsy. Wow. And at that autopsy, it was proved that she actually couldn't be more than 80 years old. And she was human? And she was human. Not a robot. Not Most certainly a, not a robot. And when this story came out, you know, Barnum tried to get the surgeon not to let people know that, but it got out. And this was the first time Barnum was labeled as the thing that would stick with him, a humbug. Uh, and so after that, he kind of became like the agent for a juggler. And so him and that juggler joined up with a traveling road circus. And then Barnum got a few other people, broke away and started his own circus-esque kind of thing. But I wouldn't call it like a circus like we think of it. Think of it like if you hired performers to come at your birthday party and there were like four or five performers. Some, mean, that sounds some, like a good birthday party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not it's not bad, but I'm just saying, not, not a circus like we're thinking. But yeah, Barnum's whole thing there was also, uh, when he was part of the circus before he broke away with his own group, he was to sell tickets. And the person who owned the circus at one point, another kind of villain origin story that easily could have been for Barnum. Not that I'm calling him a villain, but, you know, I could definitely see how people would. Um, so, when they got into town one time, the circus owner told people that Barnum was a murderer. And so, obviously, you know, a mob formed up to chase and kill Barnum because he was a famous murderer they all read about. Uh, Barnum was able to, you know, stop them from killing him and explain, no, I'm Phineas Taylor Barnum, I sell tickets. And then when they all got back to, you know, yell at the circus master, he went, it was a joke! And everyone laughed. (laughs) I think that's how the movie Joker started. Yeah, and then... Barnum was like, what the heck, dude? What was that? He's like, ah, but you see, people will hear about this story, and then they'll come and buy tickets. So there's a little more on how Barnum was like, yeah, make me sound bad. It will make people come see me. You know, he's learning a lot of lessons, really rough ways, that I don't always know are good lessons to be learning in the first place. Probably not. Yeah. (laughs) Grandfather plays a trick for his 10 years of your life. Your boss tries to get you, like, mobbed. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think that's enough to turn anyone into a, a shady person. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, you know, his circus kind of fizzled out, and he went back home to New York, and a year later, he opened up the American Museum. So what, what, what happened with that in the movie? So what happened was, uh, you know, he starts off with uh, getting as many little oddities and stuff as he can but it's not quite selling it still so he needs something more exciting so he does like an avenger style thing where he goes and he just recruits a bunch of oddballs and he goes to them and he's hugh jackman charm and he says hey you're a freak but we can make some money with that <laughs> and they all say you know what that's good enough for me and so next thing you know he's got a whole show 
of freaks that you know that he eventually turns into you know his circus yeah so that kind of happens to an extent so the big thing that drew people to the american theater wasn't a big circus-esque act um so barnum did have issue making money at first then because you know he just bought the museum of oddities as it was and you know it it did okay but in the show it definitely wasn't paying off what he needed to pay off for the loan he got so he needed to get creative and if there's one thing barnum was good at it was advertising the man could market so well it took him a while um but part of the museum was the lecture hall or the lecture room which you know sounds really boring right yeah what you saw in the movie basically all happened in the lecture room now it usually wasn't like circus level where there's a thousand acts happening at once it was more like they had one or two acts going on for like prolonged periods of time and you know they'd get switched out every so often so there'd be different thing it wasn't like this grand avengerous celebration of here's all these cool people look at them do cool things it was like this week we will have the bearded lady or this week we'll have this but one of his biggest ones that really got attention was the fiji mermaid i'm not sure if it's like from fiji because this is in sp- instead spelled f e e g no j e e instead of you know with with the i so i'm assuming that's what they were claiming but it also wasn't there or real at all it was a perp it was a porpoise graft onto a monkey is what it actually was but you know barnum knew people would call this fake when they first looked at it so they had to get it hyped up before they premiered it so to do this extent barnum's friend landed in a uh, from new york landed in america from fiji supposedly and then barnum used the newspaper not calling himself barnum to you know stir up all this talk in the newspapers about someone traveling with a mermaid or the corpse of a mermaid the remains of a mermaid and so it got this like fever going where everyone was excited to see the so-called mermaid and you know barnum knew people considered him a humbug it was something he embraced but you know he knew he needed to beat that reputation so instead of just putting it straight into his museum he put it on like he had his friend pretend to be a professor and lecture about the mermaid in like one of the new york halls for about a week and after that they then moved it to his museum of oddities because all of this marketing and hype gave it you know so-called legitimacy Hmm. well i mean you know he sounds like the king of non-payoffs yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Well, I guess that's why he was the Prince of Humbug. Exactly. So he, it was maybe like eight feet, or not eight feet, eight inches, 16 inches. He had a banner hung of it being like 16 feet. And cool. his friend was like, Phineas, I can't, I can't. <laughs> They're going to expect it to be that size. And he's like, no, they <laughs> won't. And besides, if they pay just to see that, they pay a quarter to just see that. 
they won't feel so bad because they'll get the whole museum as well for that quarter. And that was his, that was like his justification was sure you, you didn't get what you thought you were paying a quarter for. You got something a little less, you know, exciting, but you get everything else too. You know what? Brilliant. I love it. Yeah, no, it's, it's smart. It, it was smart marketing. It got people ticked off at him. Like, no doubt. But it was good marketing. Sure. Um, okay. So at this point in the movie... Uh, oh, let me ask. So, you know, Barnum is the ringleader in the movie. You know, he's, he's center stage during yeah. all the shows. Is that how it went in real life? I'm actually not sure. I don't think so. I mean, in the circus, 100%. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely in the circus. He was... He was the ringleader because, you know, the ringleader is an actual, you know, position in the circus. Well, good enough But in the museum, I think he was more like a managerial role. Because, like I said, he had his friend lecturing about the mermaid. He probably introduced himself and stuff. But he did. I, I feel like, you know what, maybe, maybe he stepped in every now and then when you're just feeling creative. I, I'd hope so. But uh, so at this point in the movie, you know, the circus, it's still not pulling like he wants it to. So he finds a partner named um, Carlisle. Carlisle. And they go to a bar and uh, they do just the coolest barroom dance ever with the coolest bartender who's just tossing shots left and right in beat. You know, not really asking who's paying or anything. Like, he's just having a great time. He, he did ask who paid. Oh, did he? Yeah, there was one point, like, he was holding their shots until Barnum realized he was out of money, and then Carlisle paid for it. It, it was a small but cool detail. I, I appreciated it. Nice. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, tell us about that. Is that. How did that go in real life? No. Just, just everything about Carlisle is no. Carlisle didn't exist. Like, at all. Which was so disappointing. So, so disappointing. Because I really liked Carlisle. But uh, beyond that, what you also wouldn't see is uh, Barnum drinking. Barnum was a huge proponent of temperance. Did not like alcohol at all. In his lecture hall, he even put on a play called The Drunkard, which is like the most temperance play you can imagine like it's sound like fun yeah no at one point barnum even had it like because people would leave his shows because he didn't sell beer at his shows like a lot of other entertainers at the time did people would leave his shows buy a beer and come back barnum doesn't like drinking he doesn't like people drinking at his place so in order to do this he started charging them readmission in if they left to get a drink like barnum didn't like drinking so no barnum would not have been doing this cool barroom dance and drinking thing which is which you know stinks because it was so cool it was it was it was so cool but yeah and his picture on on the wall too so you know he was he was like a regular yeah yeah it's like he's a regular no he is uh 100 percent not he he would not have been a regular at a bar he would have hated hated to be named as a regular at a bar 
I think it's also funny that people went to a show about the evil of alcohol and said, if we're going to watch this, I got to be wasted for it. <laughs> I don't think they probably dr- uh, drank at that one, but like the other exhibitions, say General Tom Thumb or the Fiji Mermaid, stuff like that is when they'd leave to get drinks. I doubt you, I doubt you're gonna come watch the drunkard and if you're if you want drinks. Hmm. Yeah. Well then. Uh, let me see what happens next in the movie. Okay. So with uh, with his new partner, the non existent Carlisle, uh, you know, they get some extra money and eventually Carlisle uh, hooks Barnum up with a meet with the Queen to go show off his oddities. And uh, one one of them in particular, Tom Thumb, gets a great laugh out of the Queen. You know, Barnum's really hitting it off great. And he gets introduced to a singer named Jenny Lind. Okay, so I'm going to pause you here, Nick. Because we need to talk about Tom Thumb before we can talk about Jenny Lind. We didn't, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Jenny Lind, not Jenny Lind, Tom Thumb. Was not the man's actual name, as you can imagine. Shocked. Yeah, I know. It was Charles Shocked. Stratton. He was he was about that size. But do you remember how old they said he was in the movie? I don't think they said, but he seemed older, like I maybe think, like teens, early twenties. I I think at one point he said twenties, if I'm remembering right, like twenty, twenty two. Well, so General Tom Thumb. That wasn't his actual age. Would you like to guess what his real age was, Nick? I'm afraid to guess. Five. When Barnum found him, he was five. Now, to be fair to Barnum, he was much smaller, and he did have a medical condition where he he was small, even for a five-year-old. Barnum knew, of course, if he just said, hey, I have a small five-year-old, people would be like, so? So? why, Why do we care? So Barnum aged him up to 11. I'm not sure why the movie like made him seem like he was in his 20s. You know, maybe just just get out of that uncomfortable realm, you know? Of, you know, having a child yeah. worker? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Child labor? Yeah, no. Bar- Barnum was like, yeah, I'll hire a five-year-old. I mean, at this time, it wasn't that rare. Not, I mean, not that that you know makes it okay, of course. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, it, it doesn't. No way makes it okay. But yeah, so Barnum was like, yeah, he's he's eleven, definitely eleven, and he was like, we need to change his name. He's from England now and called Tom Thumb, and as you can imagine, Charles' mother was confused, and he's like, you don't. Charles isn't an interesting name. No one comes to see Charles. General Tom Thumb, though. They'll come to see General Tom Thumb. So he he actually got his name from a piece of Arthurian myth. Uh, Supposedly, uh, King Arthur had a little knight named Tom Thumb. And that's that's where Barnum got the idea. Wow. For the name. I mean, you know, that works. Yeah, and so that's how he got there. And they did go to meet the queen. That That's a thing Barnum did. He went to meet the queen, and she adored Tom Thumb. Like, she, Tom Thumb was her favorite thing Barnum had. 
See, I didn't think that's how it would go. I thought I thought they were getting thrown out or something. I mean, the, the movie was made it look like, oh my gosh, that's that's not how it's going to go at all. Yeah. But yeah, no. Uh, yeah, no, that happened. The Queen did love Tom Thumb. Well, fair enough. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I'm not sure if that's where he met. Uh, oh yeah, go ahead and talk about Lind. Okay, so... Uh, um, Barnum uh, finds out that she's you know an amazing singer by reputation an opera singer and so he says you know I got a great new idea let's get you a show in New York and she says wow I get to go to America this is awesome and she blows the house down and Barnum you know Hugh gets dollar signs in his eyes and says, I'm going to I'm gonna do a whole tour with you, you know, uh, forget my circus, you know, forget all those guys. This is also the moment, the exact minute he turns into a jerk. Because he kicks all the, the circus guys out, and he's like, he goes up to his stepdad, and he's like, oh, what do you think of me now, stepdad? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's not good. It's a, it's a problem. And, of course, you know, the wife is like, dude, like leave my dad alone (laughs) but uh but then he says uh carlisle i guess you take the circus i'm gonna go on tour with jenny lind we're just gonna go around america be famous and make jungles of money and uh yeah so then carlisle goes and uh starts a little romance subplot with uh one of the acrobats zendaya and wheeler true yeah. And uh, who I think you said is also not real. Also not real. Ann Wheeler didn't exist. Philip Carlyle didn't exist. My Best heart. parts of the movie, in my opinion, didn't exist. I was crushed to find that out. <laughs> not surprised. Not, not, not surprised, mind you. Crushed, but not surprised. Hmm. Yeah. Well, was, yeah. speaking of, you know, the person, uh, I guess going back to Barnum. So they're on this tour. And, uh, you know, there is a, there's some tension going on, you know. She's, uh, she's sleeping on his shoulder, and you're like, whoa, is he, uh, he going to do this? What's going on here? And it all culminates to, uh, you know, she confesses, like, hey, I really like you. And he says, what? That's crazy, because I really like money. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I got, I'm actually married. So <laughs> he rejects her, and then on stage uh she waits for a camera to go off and then kisses him you know for the whole world to see and so barnum is like shit i gotta i gotta run to my wife and explain this so he hops on the next train off uh and then when he gets to his wife he doesn't explain it she says what are you doing home and he says oh you know just i got tired and he just waited for the newspapers to drop and was surprised when, whoops, my wife isn't happy about, you know, me kissing another woman on national news. Shocking. Yeah. Why don't you, uh, why don't you tell us how that tour went in real life? Okay. So he did uh, talk to Jesse Lynn or Jenny Lynn. Jenny? Jenny. Oh, my. Jenny. Jenny Lind. Ooh, not Jesse. Jenny Lind about bringing her to America. And he did do that. 
And, okay, so this is super important in American history. Not, like, super important, but fairly important to American history. American musical history. Opera? Opera was not popular in America. Not until Lind came to America. She and Barnum made opera liked in America. It was, it was pretty much regulated to the side. And because of that, Barnum knew he had his work cut out for him if he wanted to get people to come to see her. So he gave her an amazing deal. He prepaid her before she ever sold tickets. $1,000 a night for 150 performances. So, Oof. yeah, $150,000. Uh, in today's money, that's about $4 million. He prepaid her $4 million. Yeah. That's a pretty penny. Yeah. There's actually a case that uh, Barnum's, like, campaign when bringing her over is one of the first, like, actual uses of branding. Like, corporate branding, branding for things, and marketing could easily be argued. So, Barnum knew he needed to, you know, prepare the public and create hype around her. So, he focused on three things about her. Her celebrity her artistry, and her charity. The big, uh, so for celebrity, he, you know, tried to get people to be like, y'all, she's sold out all these amazing places in Europe. She's well-known. She's well-beloved. We're paying, part of the reason he was okay with prepaying her was that was part of the marketing. He's like, we're paying her $150,000 to come here and sing for y'all. So he was really hyping up and like pointing on the monetary value of like her celebrity to make people feel like they're getting a good deal when they buy tickets, making them think they were getting a steal for what they were doing. And so the artistry, which was the next, the other part that he really tried to hype up was he know he needed to do it. A, you, if you're going to see an opera singer, you want to see a good one. But B, again, he has a reputation for being a humbug, a liar, a con man even. He, he detested being called a liar and a con man, but he really? embraced the humbug. Yes. Mm-mm. We'll, we'll get to that later at, at the end when we're summarizing. But yes. Okay. He was okay with humbug. But he knew he needed to emphasize that this wasn't another one of his oddities. Or another thing like the American Museum. That she was the real deal. And so that's why he focused on hyping her up so much. And the third part, third part was her charity. So, as she said in the movie, she doesn't, she didn't keep any of her money. She gave pretty much everything she earned from this tour away. She just gave it away and to charity. She was a good person. She was independently wealthy. So she really didn't need the money. She did this all for charity. And they were doing really good. They were selling out almost every night. And then Lind and Barnum, they did split. They did they did split and Barnum stopped managing her tour. But it wasn't because she fell in love with him. No, that 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 really annoys me that the movie did that. I'm like, why'd you make her that? A, because like her big thing was like how great of a woman she was was a huge focus of what Barnum was trying to promote. And so, you know, making her be like 
no, I'm mad that you don't love me when there's no basis for that. Uh, somewhat bothered me. It seemed really weird, but because it wasn't true. The reason she broke off the uh, the contract was mainly because she thought Barnum was bad was a bad look for her. You know, as she got to more no, as bleh, as she got to know more about his you know reputation, she's like, I probably shouldn't be associating with him. After they broke that off, though. Uh, she didn't sell as good for two reasons, I'd argue. A, Barnum's a really good marketer, as we've been saying. Like, his That's whole fair. thing is he's amazing at marketing. Just amazing at marketing. The other being was people liked the contrast between Barnum and Lind. It was weird to see the super moral person with Barnum, with P.T. Barnum. That does sound like a pretty good right i actually really like that, that yeah true. yeah yeah so you're like okay what, what what is this odd couple like partnership there you go that's yeah, yeah exactly um yeah so but they broke off but it surely wasn't because she was jealous of his wife and we don't have anything indicating that and she never kissed him on stage and it made it to his newspapers in fact from everything we could tell barnum was most likely very faithful to his wife there's something we'll talk about near the end that makes me kind of question it, but that's more of a personal questioning than, you know, facts. Hmm. Wow. Man, that's a shame because in the movie, she's like the only one who doesn't get a happy ending. Oh, Lind? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I thought you meant Barnum's wife. I'm like, she gets a happy ending. But yeah, no, Lind, yeah. Lind gets no, 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 no happy ending. She just cries and leaves on stage that's instead I feel like of she deserves her own movie i'd argue she 100 percent does i mean being the person that made opera popular in america it's you know not a small feat well yeah for sure yeah you know, uh just think of all the people going to the opera and you're like why is this cool the answer is Jenny Lind. Jenny Lind. And P.T. Barnum. But Jenny, he couldn't have done it without Lind. Exactly. Well, speaking of P.T., you know, this is his low point in the movie now. This is his fall from grace. Because, oh, yeah. uh, you know, big surprise, his wife wasn't happy about that picture of him. And so Shocking. she, yeah, so she takes the kids uh, to go um, to the stepdad's. And the stepdad is like, eat it, stepson. And, <laughs> yeah. and uh, all of his uh, circus guys are like, you screw you, PT. You know, you, you just went and abandoned us. And then, uh, you know, adding insult to injury, they burned the whole place down. So, you know, Barnum, there goes all of his money and just everything he's built. And he realizes, oh, man, I've... Uh, I've really lost it all now. And uh, so as he's sitting in the ashes, uh, one of his critics walks over. He's like, I know I called you a crook for decades now, but I want you to know, you know, you were an okay guy. And for that's when P.T. Barnum realizes, you know, maybe the real circus was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> and so he decides, let's, uh, I'm going to go... Well, first he says, I'm going to go drink and be sad in a bar. Which apparently isn't what the real PT would do. Nope. 
and all the circus guys come up and they said, you know, you're a, you're a pretty bad person. And, uh, you know, you really, you really treated us bad. But you're also the only per you've treated us better than anyone else. <laughs> you treated us awful. But believe it or not, you somehow still managed to treat us better than everyone else. Yeah. And I said, yay? <laughs> I guess? Classic so, Disney movie ending. Exactly. <laughs> and so, yeah, so they say, you know what? Let's, uh, let's start a new circus. But this time we don't need a building. We're going to use a tent instead. And so, you know, they start off uh, circus as we know it. Barnum is back in center stage where he belongs. And then he says, uh, you know what, uh, Carlisle, you totally non-existent person. You get to keep the circus, and I'm going to go watch my daughters play and be a family man now. Yeah, yeah. And, and everybody lives happily ever after except for Jenny Lind. Yeah, she just disappeared. Yeah. So, this won't surprise you, but there's a lot of issues with all of that. I'm shocked. Yeah. So, so his... Mostly that he liked money. <laughs> he did indeed like money. So, first of it being... So, it did burn down. The American Museum burned down for the second time in 1865. Which was the final time it burned down. It burned down once before. Uh, but no one really knows why it burned down in 65. Uh, they're not even sure if it was arson. If it was arson, they suspect it was Confederate sympathizers because recently Barnum had been putting on a lot of pro-Union stuff in the museum. I'm kind of surprised they only burned it down once in the movie. Yeah. Uh, Sounds like an easy, you know, thrilling point to throw in. I think there was just no other time for the second one, the first one, for two. That's fair. Yeah. So after this, they were like, okay, we're, we're, we're done with it. And that's what, when Barnum quit. So the issues here, A, again, Lind and Barnum never kissed, so the whole like fight with his wife didn't really happen. His girls by this time were like in their 20s. Because hmm. the museum opened in 42, and it burned down in 65. Yeah, I guess they would be older. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. And Barnum opened his circus in 1870 is when he actually opened a circus and was really the first circus. Because, again, the American Museum wasn't a circus. It was, you know, oddities and collections. And the lecture stage is where he had, I'd say, circus acts. But, like I said, it'd be one act or rotating acts here and there and not, like, you know, a circus. And then again, Carlisle never existed. So no, he didn't go 50-50 with the non-existent Philip Carlisle. Darn. Yeah, I know. Big bummer. I, I was bummed too. So he did kind of go 50-50 with Bailey. If you were wondering where does Bailey show up, because I was kind of, I, I figured, oh, we're going to, you know, hear some weird reveal like Carlisle gets disowned and takes the name Bailey or his middle name's Bailey. Or, you know, something... Something last minute and kind of like that, right? That's what I was expecting. I mean, that that would be like the easiest way to make your movie just a little more accurate. <laughs> it, it wouldn't have been much more accurate, grant you. But, but you uh, know what? It would have been some. 
then at least Carlisle could have sort of existed. But instead, Bailey didn't come around till about 1880. Or the, eight, the 1880s. Um, and so Bailey was part of another circus that existed at the time that was kind of the rival circus to Barnum's. And basically they just went, hey, what if we just got one giant circus instead? And that's how the Barnum and Bailey Circus became the Barnum and Bailey Circus. Hmm. Yeah. Which I believe was, I have it right here, it was uh, open for 80 years before it closed just in 2017. Yeah. How about that? That doesn't sound right. I, I think it is. I think the, I the, the, right the 80 years doesn't sound right. Oh. Because if, if, if they merged in the 1880s, they closed in 2017. You viewers at home, go ahead and uh, <laughs> do the math and mail it in for us. We'll, uh, we'll let you know what It ran for are. over 100 years. There we go. Yes. Yeah, which ran for over 100 years, and that's pretty impressive. It's not bad. Ah, and so, other few things that the movie doesn't touch on is, you know, what happened to Barnum in the rest of his life post-circus. Because he, he didn't just do the circus. Yeah, I think he did eventually step away from the circus, and then, you know, it was just his name being on it and making money from it. Uh, he actually became a politician for a while. Uh, again, big, really big on temperance. That was his main thing. He actually was eventually even against the death penalty. Which, you know, for the 1800s, pretty surprising. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, Barnum had good aspects to him. I'm not saying he's... I mean, me and Nick have been ragging on him, as you've heard. It's, it's easy to do. It's easy. I'm not saying he's, like, the worst human being to walk the earth. I'm, I'm also saying he's not a good person. Uh, he definitely has many, many faults. Uh, especially where we are today there was a lot wrong with barnum but he wasn't like constantly evil in everything he did just a lot of the things he did were really exploitive and took advantage of people but so as you've seen like what would you think what would y'all say barnum's main goal through this movie was in the movie uh to be center stage Topher? Yeah, honestly, to just be... Always have the attention on him. Yeah. Well, well, in the movie, probably also to make people happy, quote-unquote. <laughs> yeah. And so, I'm, I'm not sure if the real Barnum wanted to, quote-unquote, make people happy. I think he definitely used that line. I could easily see him using that line. Uh, but, yeah, Barnum wanted to be the center of attention. He wanted money... But his main thing, I think the movie did a good job of showing it, even though, you know, it missed a lot of things, was Barnum wanted status. He wanted to be, you know, seen as high society. It's why he got uh, Lind. Wasn't because, you know, she'd make him a lot of money. That was part of it. But Barnum wanted a legitimate act. It's why he has, like, a whole book where he tries to defend the humbug. He's like, humbug isn't lying. Humbug isn't conning someone. He's like, it's a legitimate business practice. He wanted to see 
as legitimate. That was a big thing of Barnum's life. He wants people to, you know, he wants to make money. He wants to be in attention, but he wants to be legitimate. He wants to have that status, which I think the movie, you know, it showed he didn't want people to look down on him. He hated being looked down on. Hmm. Yeah, I th- I think I think the movie movie did good on that. I think so. And you yeah. know, it really showed that as soon as he got like his his Jenny Lynn status and he you know, he said goodbye, circus yeah. freaks. Yeah, I'm he said he said now. forget y'all. He he was like For- forget about y'all. And I could easily see that being Barnum. I think the more accurate thing was ah uh, I don't think Barnum was ever close with his, you know, freaks and oddities. There were more things for him to display than people he interacted with. That's kind of sad. Yeah, I mean, he had... Shoot, I imagine he had people that he couldn't interact with. Uh, He had, quote-unquote, Aztec warriors at the American Museum for a while. It was just a tribe from South America he had claiming to be Aztecs. Uh, he had a whole Native American tribe there once, and they only left once uh, one of them got run over by a train. Wow. Yeah, like, again, Barnum, in my opinion, from what I've read on The Real Barnum, they weren't people to him, but they were attractions. Whereas, you know, we see Barnum treating them that way and then feeling bad in the movie. Uh, I'm not sure they were ever more than attractions and oddities to the real Barnum. Hmm. Well, you know what? That status thing kind of makes sense because when I was watching it, you know, I was thinking, you know, I was asking myself, why would Barnum, like, leave being the center of his own show to be, you know, the side of Jenny Lynn's? Yeah. For me, I thought I would rather be the center of attention myself yeah but that like i said that wasn't his main goal it was a nice goal it was he liked being the center of attention but more than that he liked being legitimate it's why he got carlisle in the movie remember it wasn't because his show was doing really well at that point when he hired carlisle he was doing good but he needed someone who could reach the snobs the upper Ah. class it's also why he kept focusing on the newspaper writer because remember, they were just, they kept telling him, just ignore him. Who cares what he thinks? We're doing great. And they were. They were selling out constantly. But he's like, they're like, he's just a snob. And Barnum retorts, yeah, but all the snobs listen to him. That's right. Yeah. Barnum wanted status. And if I'm, I'd argue that goes back to Ivy Island when, you know, the first 10 years of life, he was told he was a important landowner a pillar of the community a future pillar of the community and then it was all like ripped under him all at once that's you know speaking of snobs i just want to say uh you know i think pt barnum has like a hugh jackman x-men superpower of niceness because people are calling him a fraud and a liar to his face and he's just like yeah well you know it's all it's all good fun we're having you know, if it were me, I'd be upset. You know, I, I would say, hey, I stole a lot of money to make this happen. 
you better you better appreciate <laughs> exactly and i mean that's kind of what barnum like i said he wrote a thing defending the humbug because he believed humbug was respectable lying and conning were not but humbug humbug was simply a marketing tactic because you know they came to the american museum and sure maybe they didn't get what they were expecting but look for 25 cents they got what they came to see even if it was somewhat disappointing and everything else in the museum as well and also it made the coolest hat it was a really cool hat with the 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 king of hum king prince prince of humbug prince of humbug on the top hat such a good look yeah yeah we all need that we all need that hat topher why don't you hit us with some facts about the movie oh (laughs) and by the way people you know, be on the lookout for our very first spin-off episode, I guess, where Topher is going to call it. Well, you know, that's what we're going to call it. Names on the fly. Well, we'll we'll have a name for the series that we'll do that won't be us talking about history, but uh, it'll, it'll be some interesting takes just on films from us. Yeah, and the first episode is Topher. He's going to explain to us how the Greatest Showman turned. Uh, the Oscars into a circus. <laughs> I mean, there were always a circus, but this they made the greatest showman made the circus a public. I'll say that. Nice. Nice. It brought it to more people's attention. So stay tuned for that. Hit us with some other facts. Um I mean, so yeah, the greatest showman it came out in 2017 tail end of 2017 in december um directed by michael gracie who i think this was his feature directorial debut he had first started off just as a visual effects artist um but it had been like produced and was in development for a long time by a guy named bill condon who is famous for the last two twilight movies Hmm. and the and the 2002 chicago movie Starring, you know, Wolverine, as you keep saying, Hugh Jackman, who, mind you, <laughs> is very much more handsome than the real-life P.T. Barnum. Oh, yeah. Which really but, just speaks to the real-life Barnum's charisma. Yeah, it, it, yes, exactly. But, um, apparently when they were when they were developing the movie, they the only actor they ever considered for P.T. Barnum was Hugh Jackman, and he signed on, like, pretty early he signed on they started developing it in 2008 2009 and he signed on like right away so it was a development like hell development limbo for about like six or seven years before they started uh, actually making it i wouldn't want to make this movie with anyone else either yeah (laughs) i i mean it it has to be phil yeah phil and then uh, cut that out hugh jackman hugh jackman (laughs) yeah and then also starring zach efron or Troy Bolton, Zendaya, um, Michelle Williams, Rebecca Ferguson, and then pretty cool little tidbit, little one somewhat unknown actor at the time, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II. He played Zendaya's older sister. Uh, Some of you may actually know him better if you're into comic book movies as the younger Black Manta from, from Aquaman. Mm-hmm. And one of the 
interesting things about the greatest showman from like a film perspective is that when it came out it was kind of a sleeper hit because it opened christmas it opened on christmas and then but it was going up against like christmas time is insane that's like where some of the biggest movies come out so it came out and was competing against the Jumanji remake, Star Wars The Last Jedi, Pitch and Pitch Perfect 3. That that's what that's what that was its competition. So it's pretty steep. And only it only finished fourth that first week. That first weekend. And it made about like nine million. Which is decent but i mean for a big tentpole like what this was supposed to be that's pretty small but then and this this almost never happens usually like as time goes on diminishing returns set in but in its second weekend it actually grossed about like 15 million dollars so it actually like jumped up it and that was purely through word of mouth because it's a feel-good movie with a Disney ending with a very bankable star who's very handsome and it's a musical and musicals are pretty rare nowadays even though this was started this was sort of like at the height of like the musical renaissance so this came out like a year after La La Land um, and where musicals are starting to like we're really starting to pick up form again um, and it kept just kept making money kept making good decent money um, and it went on to become a really, really good, like, the box office success against a budget of about, like, uh, $85 million. And so that's pretty cool because that's, like, never on her. This was, like, a truly world of, word of mouth thing because the people loved it. Oh, yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. Yeah, as evidenced by you two being the people. <laughs> <laughs> Side note. We need more musicals. True. There, uh, Jackman. Pixar is coming out with one, I think, or no, oh. not Pixar. I think it's mm-hmm. Sony. Sony. I know. I know. Lin Manuel Miranda is working on an animated musical. I think it's with Sony. I think it's supposed oh, to come nice. out. I'm here for it. You. You I'm got. Sold. Yeah, I was already I mean, there at musical, and then you had Lin Manuel Miranda, and. I mean, he's also coming out with In the Heights this year. Which looks fantastic. Yeah, I'm excited. Sweet. Um, and it's also starring... It also... I didn't know this, but apparently Rosa Diaz, Stephanie Beatrice, the actress, is going to be in the mo- in that movie. Sweet. Ooh, that's exciting. Um, but yeah. Critics, though, like, in the kind of professional sphere, it had a bit of more of a mixed response. Um... So, like, on Rotten Tomatoes, it was, like, 57%. So, technically, it was rotten. On Metacritic, it had a weighted average of 48 out of 100. Um, And so, I mean, people weren't, like, it's horrible. People weren't, the critics weren't, like, it's horrible or, like, it's amazing. It was more like, it's fine. It's okay. And a lot of... A lot of the um, criticism was basically 
saying it's fun. It's a good musical. It is feel good. But if they stuck close, if they stuck closer to like the idea of a PT Barnum movie, it would have been so much better and would have been so much more entertaining because his, his actual real life story is far more fascinating than the story they co- they concocted. It's more bizarre for sure. Well, but it's it, that's interesting. That's true. But again, this this is a this movie just is like a it's a real good example of the disconnect sometimes between critics and audiences because so, so there's these two other um there's this company called CinemaScore that does live polling at film premieres and like usually on the first weekend usually on the opening weekend in select theaters usually in like new york la chicago like big markets um and so as people are leaving their like showings they literally just they literally have polls there and they're like hey how how would you rate this how would you grade this film and it's on an a plus to f scale scale and it got an a and Post track is another version. It's another thing similar, and it got four out of five, four point five out of five stars, and a seventy percent definite recommend. So, like you guys, the people, the people loved it. Um, personally, like I said at the top, it's a meh movie. Lies. But it's a it's a great musical. That's it, Topher. You're fired. You can't fire me. That's true. I came into this podcast late, and I probably have more power than you. I don't think that's well, how this works. Shh, shh. Let me believe. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like for the most part, like generally, it's it's just it, it's eh. The good, the goodness of the musical outweighs the menace of the actual film itself. The performances were fine. The set design and like the actual like production design of it was really great, but the writing was bleh. It didn't really feel like it had a soul. I think it had a soul. And yeah, it's Hugh Jackman. <laughs> it was okay. okay. Nah, it, it was it was the uh, it, it was the romance. The, the romance the was romance. the soul. For sure. The romance of, that never happened for the people that never existed. Yeah. Well, yeah. But I, speaking I of think that if you cut them out, romance. I really don't think the movie would have been good if you cut them out. Especially that that one song they do. Rewrite where, the stars. Just yeah. Perfection. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. you know, she, Zendaya is doing some trapeze stuff, and Zac Efron decides I'm gonna join you. And he climbs up a balcony, not taking the stairs, but like just climbing, and just jumps on a rope with no training. And you know, I just want to say, I mean, that's that's a pretty daring move. Yeah, uh, yeah. This this is true. And uh, it, you know, I want to try that. It did get some awards buzz, but mostly in like the best original song and best score categories. Um, this is me was like doing pretty well and getting nominations across the board. Yeah. Um, and it won at some of it's won at some awards, most notably the Golden Globes. It didn't win at the Academy, 
Uh, luckily for one, luckily the one that I thought should have won with the Academy Awards that year did win, and that was um, "Remember Me" from Coco. Oh, that one is good. Yeah. Yes. I mean, if you're in a mood to cry, I guess. But I, will, I it's a better it's a better made song, but it's also like taken in context of the film. That song is far more powerful than this is than this is me. Even in the context of this is me. Uh, even the, even in this is me's context in the film of the great in the, the greatest showman so i don't know if that made sense i kind of stumbled on my words and kind of confused myself oh, no it makes sense we're good okay but yeah so this, um, oh there's more oh one cool fact about this that this film though the premiere so you know how Hollywood movie premieres usually are like at I still don't remember the name of the I don't remember the name of the theater the but the big theater, right? the Chinese theater if that's what it's called but yes the one in LA or they have their premiere in like New York or in the big big city like London or um France Chicago stuff like that these guys decided they're going to have their premiere on a cruise ship. I think Phineas Taylor Barnum would approve. I, I thought you were gonna say a circus tent. That would have been no. Cool. That would have been more on brand. It would have. They they decided to go with a cruise ship. Well, that does sound that pretty cool. Fun. I still think Barnum would approve. Yeah. Oh, he definitely would. Uh, that's that's right but up yeah. his alley. It. Yeah, and now there's this big whole mythos around it, and like, I know, I know some people that legitimately think it's like one of the greatest movies ever made. Present, Nick, Nick included. Wouldn't say greatest, but I, I, I truly do not. think it's a good movie. Um, but yeah, there was some rumblings of a potential sequel, uh, but no. pretty much everyone involved was like, eh, nah. And then, um, but, well, everyone except for Jackman involved was like, eh, I don't think so. Jackman was down to reprise the role. Yeah, but after, was. But after Disney acquired 20th Century Fox, um, the original production company, they, Disney ended the distribution deal with the original production company for, like, their films. So now, like, the... the the future of the potential sequel is kind of in limbo. Turn it. Cool. Um, so, yeah. So that's a bit about the making of it. They, they, I, they, I couldn't find much about the director um, other than he did a lot of work on visual effects in the past, and that's kind of why they brought him in for this film. That was, like, one of his big selling points. There were um, some good effects. Yeah, the, the effects were good. There were. I think what would have been interesting, though, is that before he was hired, um, James Mangold was in talks to direct. And he, uh, he, well, he came in as an executive producer, but for a bit he was in talks to direct. And I think that would have been interesting. You guys might know James Mangold because he created, I consider this film a masterpiece. He created the masterpiece that was Logan. 
he directed Logan. So Nice. I think I think he would have had an interesting take on this. Yeah. But I think it was I think it was also safer to I think from a like from a producer standpoint though, it was also safer to hire a first time director. Because when there's a lot of kind of out of the box like when there's out of the box kind of films like this where it's like original IPs, original ideas, um, marketable in like certain ways, but like not like entirely being able to hit the mainstream without some sort of um, miracle, I guess you could say. And in this case, the miracle was um, word of mouth. Um, producers usually hire first time directors that have been around in the business because they, in a way, it's like they have a bit more control over the director because the dude wants the dude or the the girl wants to prove themselves, um, and wants to like please, but also wants to like and do their vision. So there's a bit more of that like control aspect hmm. because that's interesting. Um, they, I mean, they have nothing really to back them up. Like, and it, in essence, these guys are the producers are just essentially taking a chance on these guys, um, and so. Like, if you look back at a lot of prominent directors' films and stuff, like their first few features, <laughs> usually pretty bad. And you can usually attribute that to, one, inexperience, and two, um, uh, corporate interference. And by corporate, I mean, like, produce producers and, like, financiers and stuff. And, like, distributors and whatnot. So, yeah. I think if they had gone a more established director for the scale they wanted to make this movie at, I think it probably would have come out much better. That's just my two cents on it, though. Fair enough. Well, that, that's that's some cool facts. Yeah. This seems like a like a big movie to you know cut your teeth on. If yeah. I'm yeah. Using that right. Yeah. So props to him. I I enjoyed the movie. Uh, hopefully, y'all enjoyed listening to us talk about it and the history. Oh, and, and, and real quick, real quick, I'm not bashing the director. I think for like a first time, like actual like directing a big tentpole film like this, I think he did it. Like it, within that context, I think he did a really good job. Yeah, no. With like the experience that he had and all. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope y'all enjoyed listening to us. That's. That's our podcast. So look out for our next one. We will be discussing the movie Zodiac and the Zodiac Killer. Hopefully. Whoa. Yes. Um, and uh, be sure to, uh, you know, as you listen to us, tell other people. And because, uh, you know, spread if the we word get... of mouth like the word of mouth got spread for Greatest Showman. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah we'd really you know, appreciate it. Hit us all it. up on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, you can find us at Twitter at uh, Filmcasters. You can email us, uh, filmcasterspod at gmail.com. We love hearing any feedback, criticism, comments y'all have. We love interacting with y'all, so let us know. Uh, and send this episode to Hugh Jackman. Yeah, send this episode to Hugh Jackman. <laughs> yeah. And also, if we are able to get 500 listeners, we'll be able to afford those Prince of Humbug hats. And then we can just wear them for all of our recordings. Oh yeah, we'll, we'll, you won't know that we're wearing them, but we'll, you'll, we'll post you'll have a picture to trust us. of the first time we we record with them of us Perfect. wearing them. 
Yeah. Yeah. So you know, if you want to see that, you could you could help out by uh, you know reviewing our podcast wherever you watch podcasts. So hopefully we could get some more viewers. Tell your friends about it. I hope y'all enjoyed it. Uh, and that's our time. So thank y'all very much. Y'all so have long. a great rest of your day. <laughs>